Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape a space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity navel-gazing and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the last episode of season 10. Indeed, the last episode for a while. You know, I was fully intending to wrap the season with my conversation with my podcast hero, Mike Pesca. But the the idea for this episode kept speaking to me. I I just, I I couldn't get it out of my head. (laughs) And it made me so uncomfortable, uh, so, so anxious that I just decided I had to lean right into it. So today I will be in conversation with Stefania Arzamendia, my therapist. <laughs> yep, my therapist. You want me to add a layer to those stakes? Uh, she was also my history student in Barcelona, but uh, that was a lifetime ago. We didn't keep in touch so well, which is a shame because she's pretty extraordinary. But about a year ago, the wheels kind of fell off the Lazar bus. By my reckoning, all of those forces that make it hard for so many of us to breathe these days, exacerbated by a couple of years of pandemic teaching and pandemic parenting, just took their toll on me. My body full on broke down Now, I'm not sure this is the space to reflect on the uncomfortable details of it all, but suffice to say, your boy literally couldn't walk, like hands and knees crawling to the bathroom, worst pain in my life, in and out of the hospital, dizzying regimen of medications, you get it. So like after about a month in sheer desperation, I posted a little thing on social media asking if anyone could share some literature, some ideas on pain management. So Stefania reached out, offered to talk. I I was reticent. I will admit I was reticent in in part because she was my student and in part because, well, I mean, to be honest with you, I really hadn't put the pieces of the puzzle together which is to say that I hadn't even imagined that my insane physical pain was a manifestation of my emotional or spiritual or mental unwellness, which is bananas because I had just wrote a song called Bodies Keep the Score. I recorded it with a choir, but I think I kind of thought that like other people's body kept the score Right? Like, like there was some kind of impenetrable wall between my body and my spirit. I don't know. I was just so, so thoroughly convinced that my back injury and my nerve damage was <laughs> from, uh, from bad positioning when I was deadlifting 
which I mean, listen, I don't have perfect deadlifting form, but, uh, that, that wasn't the nucleus of the problem. Anyway, like I said, I was desperate and I was opening up to solutions from every possible angle. So I set up a call with Steffi and, uh, yeah, the rest is history. And she's been creating a space for me ever since. So I really wanted to create a space for her on this podcast. So Steffi and I dive right into the complexities of the interdisciplinary nature of her efforts to connect mind and body, past and present. We discuss how Gabor Mate's model of compassionate inquiry has influenced her practice. Uh, we also discuss how self-awareness and suffering, taking responsibility and letting go, inform her work. Oh, and we get into her work with psychedelics, especially ayahuasca. So you're not going to want to miss that. Now, at the end of the podcast, even though we didn't really plan for this, I ended up talking through some of my feelings about this here episode being the last one, at least for a while. But more on that later. For now, let's dive right into my conversation with my therapist, Stefania Arzamendia. Stefania Arzamendia, welcome to Fora Living. It's a real pleasure to have you here with me. How do you describe what you do? Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here sharing this with you and your audience. I am a humanistic, integrative psychotherapist by profession, but I like to think of myself as a person that is guiding another to finding the light within themselves so they can find peace and love and compassion for themselves amidst their suffering. And I can say from firsthand experience that you do this exceptionally well, and I'm eager to learn more about it. But before we do, perhaps you might be willing to share how you got on this path. I studied psychology in university, and I was so bombarded with theories and tags and clinical theories that I didn't want to know anything about psychology. It was all very dehumanizing. And I started noticing that I would spend time with people and start labeling them unconsciously. I didn't enjoy being that kind of person and experiencing the world that way. And I was really bummed out with, with psychology. I didn't think it was very human. So I went into the business world. I, I did real estate. I tried acting. I was then working in London in a tech startup as a product manager, designing artificial intelligence. And in this time, I had a very close friend of mine who was having mental health issues. And, and it was a family friend. And I, I wanted to help him. And I didn't know how. And at the same time, my boss's, um, not wife, but the mother of his children was struggling with her mental health and it was affecting the kids' well-being. And they were very involved at the time because 
when you have a startup, the kids are in the office and it became quite a common reality for all the, all the workers in the company. And that was very painful to me, seeing the children suffering. And I would spend my days in the office like, ah, oh, how can we, you know, like, what can we do to, to help this woman? And I had this deep desire to have the tools to help this family and help my family friend. And that's when I realized I did not want to spend my days looking at a screen, analyzing uh, logic trees and designing artificial intelligence. I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in what was human. And that was very much the contrary. And I quit. I, I quit that job and I left my flat. I left London. I actually went to a rainbow gathering, a gathering in the forest in Poland where there's no technology, no internet, no electricity, and you're just living with nature. And right before entering that retreat, I signed up to do my master's in humanistic psychotherapy because I discovered then that there is a way of doing therapy where it's not clinical, where it's humanistic, and where each person is seen as an individual as opposed to a label. And that started me on my journey. I trained for two years and I received the tools to help people in their difficult processes. And people do have deeply difficult processes and it is your work to try to help them to cast a light on that. And it's not easy work. It's sometimes terribly complex work. And, you know, Steffi, tempted as I am to try to start simple and like scale up to the complexity of your approach to helping people to heal, I'm almost afraid that it might be best if we grapple with some of the complexities and some of the nuances up front here. Yeah. You know, now I, I'm going to hazard to guess that perhaps some of the complexities are rooted in your biography. Like, you know, Whitman would have us all believe, you know, you're large, you contain multitudes. You're a third culture person, Paraguayan European, you know, totally a woman of the world. And I, I suspect that the complexities of your identities and the experiences that you've had as a global nomad have informed your pursuit of what I'm tempted to call like an interdisciplinary, integrated approach to healing. Now, Steffi, with your consent, I want to read a short passage from your website, and then I want to try to dial into a question that I have about the complexity of it all. Is that okay with you? For sure, yes. Okay, so listeners, listen close. There's a lot going on here. Okay. You write, My work encompasses a biological, psychological, social, and spiritual approach to well-being. The model adopted in my practice is based on integrative humanistic psychotherapy, integrated with Taoist philosophy, and traditional Chinese medicine principles. More specifically, my theoretical psychological approach is existential humanistic, and I work with bioenergetic therapy, gestalt therapy, and transactional analysis, amongst other humanistic models, and Dr. Gabor Mate's compassionate inquiry approach. I'm also training with Eckhart Tolle in becoming a teacher of presence. 
my studies with the indigenous Hunaquin people of Brazil and the Kogi and Wiwa people of the Sierra Nevada of Colombia has had a huge impact in my work as they've taught me the power of prayer, community, unity, and of medicinal plants to guide us back to our essential selves. Okay, so there's a lot of there there, yeah. <laughs> now, you pursue an integrative approach, as you described there. It's an integrative approach to healing, which you describe in shorthand as a biopsychosocial spiritual perspective. Can you unpack that for me, please? Yeah, for sure. I think it's super important because the biopsychosocial spiritual model is a holistic approach and it acknowledges the interaction between the physical, the biological, the psychological, the social and the spiritual aspects of a person in their experience of the world. Now we are beings that are in relationship. We have biological issues that are connected to our social relationships. We have psychological issues that are related to our interpersonal relationships or our physical illnesses. And they don't exist without the other. So when a person comes to me for support for a specific something they're suffering with, it's really important to take into account all these aspects of their life. Because it's not just a psychological disharmony. There will be something in their body that's also connected. And it's super important to understand what their day-to-day -day is. Are they married? Do they have a family? What's the relationship with their wife like? Or maybe they're not. Maybe they're single and having one-night stands all the time. What are they eating? Are they having burgers and Coca-Cola every day? Because that's going to affect your mental health. What are their spiritual practices like? Are they dancing? Are they singing? Are they connected to a force greater than themselves? All these aspects of their life will have an impact on their well-being. And they're really important to be made aware of, to understand the connection between all these aspects for them to essentially understand themselves better. Right, okay, I'm totally with you. And now that we dove headfirst into the complexity of it, I think it might be best to return to simplicity and get grounded, you know. So. Steffi, I was going to ask you how your therapy sessions begin, like how you create a space to do this integrative, interdisciplinary work. But it dawned on me that instead of me asking you to talk about how you start sessions, would you be game to just kind of like simulate the start of a session like we would if this was our session, yours and mine? Yes, we can. But what I will say is the beginning of a session will always be different because each person's different and what each person brings to the session differs. And based on where they're at, the session will go one way or the other. Makes perfect sense. It's not a one size fits all model, right? No, because what I don't do actually is I don't ask a bunch of questions immediately. I don't do a questionnaire. I know those things will come up as the session evolves. 
But what's most important to me is what that person is feeling and experiencing right now. And then reverse engineering. Right. That's actually kind of what I wanted to try to illustrate because you and I begin in a, a certain way where you kind of ask me how things are going and then you ask me to dial into my body a little bit. How do you feel about simulating this just for the audience to give them a sense of the type of tone that you try to create? I would love that. All right. So total simulation, we're, we're on the phone. You and I do this um, on WhatsApp, just WhatsApp audio, because it's my preference to just be able to look out the window. You were an actor for a while. <laughs> Here you go. Yes. Scene. Hello. How, how are you doing today? I mean, <laughs> you know me, Steffi. I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. I'm privileged and everything's fine. Uh, on like on, on some level, um, you know, no tragedies here. I am struggling in some ways. Um, I'm really struggling to focus on one task at a time. And my seeming inability to do that is becoming really problematic for like my, my, my mental health and well-being. And I'm really anxious about putting this podcast on hiatus. I kind of feel like I'm giving up part of myself and, um, and it's sad. And like I, my mind keeps on returning to that and I don't know if I'm doing the right thing, but I'm, I'm committed to it. So yeah, I'm reeling from that amongst other things. So why don't we create a space, first of all, before inquiring into your feelings and what that means to you and grounding ourselves, taking a few deep breaths. Would you be up for that? Yeah, it seems like the right move. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, it seems like the right move. This isn't the simulation anymore. I totally probably should take a few breaths. <laughs> All right. So if you could put your feet on the ground, rest your hand on your knees with your palms facing the sky. And I invite you to close your eyes if that feels comfortable. And taking a deep belly breath through your nose, holding your breath for three, two, one, and exhaling through your nose. Deep belly breath. And tuning into your body, noticing where there might be any tension. And in each exhale, releasing some of that tension and giving it back to the ground. Dropping your shoulders, relaxing your tongue, relaxing your facial muscles, dropping into your body. And as you keep breathing, just notice if there's any tension in your stomach area and release some tension in your next exhale. 
Again, giving it back to the ground. Uh, Steffi, we totally should have started the podcast like that. Okay. So sometimes, oftentimes perhaps, your sessions begin with breathing, getting grounded, feeling one's body. Now, from there, how would you describe the tone of the therapeutic space that you seek to create? It's one of calm and groundedness, a space of safety and one where the person has the capacity to develop some distance between what is happening in their minds and what they're feeling and what their awareness is able to perceive. You do that really well. And I want to dial into that just for a second. Like, what do you do in your work to sustain that tone? Like, I understand how you create it. It's breathing. It's also bringing your full Steffi self <laughs> to the session. Can you kind of talk me through a little bit what you do to sustain that tone of safety and calm and groundedness? And, and, and particularly when a client gets a little worked up, they, they're, they're, they're grappling perhaps with some trauma or with some anxiety, and you feel them revving up, how do you help to sustain that tone of safety, calm, presence, and groundedness? Well, first of all, it's important for me to be in a space of groundedness, calm, and peace. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm not in that place, I can't offer that space for someone else. So the spiritual that's where the spiritual practice of the practitioner themselves comes into play in the session. Because I can only take a person as far as I've taken myself. Right. So it's important to be in that space when I start the session. So do you have something of a practice that you do before a session or before a day's worth of work? Yes, I do. Before a session, I'm in silence. And I check into my body, and make sure that there's calm and serenity. And there's an emptying of what is happening in my life so I can make space to fully show up for the other person. Then I can enter the session. And it only takes five minutes, but it's important to create that space. Yeah. Apart, for, apart from my daily practices, like I have my daily practices, you know, yoga and meditation and playing the guitar and playing not doing so many mental activities, but my, the way I live my life is a full reflection as well of what I can live on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the quality of, of my mood, right? But to answer your question more fully yeah. in creating that space for the client, it's about attunement. 
And it's about attuning to the person I'm speaking with and tuning into their field and how they're feeling and where they are and creating a space where we're in that space together so I'm in connection to them. Attunement is very important to create that space. There's also the power of listening authentically and showing up for them in the way I am, you know, not showing up as a role, showing up as a psychotherapist. It's like, no, I'm showing up as Steffi who has trained and has certain skills to be guiding and supporting the person, but I'm showing up as authentically myself. Yeah. And that creates an environment of trust and safety for the other person because they know what they're getting. I totally feel that. I feel it when you say it here on the podcast, and I feel it when we are in sessions together. When I was thinking about this question of the tone you set, the first word that came to my mind is compassionate, right? You have this really compassionate tone. And I know that compassionate inquiry, as conceived by Dr. Gabor Mate, already mentioned in the podcast, is central to your therapeutic approach. So let me ask you, like, how does Dr. Mate's method differ from traditional psychotherapy and, and what benefits have you observed in your clients using this approach? Mm. Enormous benefits. I'll go to that one second, but compassionate inquiry is a methodology that includes the factor of compassion Whereas that's not what I had learned in my other trainings. And it's not about having compassion for the client, but actually leading to the client to a place of developing that compassion for themselves. And through the act of compassion, they heal. Compassion for having an understanding that what they're suffering from are actually coping mechanisms that they developed as kids to survive. And this aspect of the compassionate inquiry methodology is what differs from other therapeutic approaches that I've come to know. Okay. And its impact in my sessions is gigantic. And I only know this because I have clients that are 40, 45, and that have been doing therapy for years. You know, me being, I'm 30, I'm turning 32 on Sunday. So I'm quite a young therapist. And to, to have a 45-year-old who's been doing therapy since she's 20 tell me that I have shifted something for her in ways that no one ever has and that I'm an excellent therapist, I know is not because, I know part of it is because, yeah, I'm a good therapist, but 80% of that being a good therapist is following the compassionate inquiry approach because it's leading her to a place of developing compassion for herself, which is something that no other therapist had done for her. And that's just me holding a torch I was given and, and handing it to the other person. I'm just a messenger. <laughs> in that regard. But leading a per 
leading a person to a place where they can feel love, compassion for themselves and forgive themselves, that's where it's at. Yeah, definitely where it's at. So I've read two Gabor Mate books, one per your suggestion and another on my own accord. He thinks and writes a lot about trauma. Sometimes, in some ways, your sessions are trauma-based. How would you describe what that means? Yeah, trauma-based means having the awareness of how trauma can negatively impact a person and their ability to feel safe their ability to develop trusting relationships, their ability to have functional relationships with their family members or romantic partners. And helping the person become aware of how the experiences they've had in the past have affected their ability to function in a harmonious way in the present moment. So you chose the word aware instead of knowledgeable there. And I think that's really important. Can you talk a little bit about how in your work you seek in some cases to bring people who know that they have endured a trauma or multiple traumas and to bring them to become aware, to become conscious of how that impacts their well-being. Yeah, I mean, many people don't even know that the experiences they had in the past have traumatized them. Yeah. Some have normalized those occasions as something that's normal in any child's life, right? They have an alcoholic parent and they grow up thinking that that kind of behavior from a parent, perhaps being verbally or physically abusive is, is normal. And they don't see the connection between being emotionally abused by an alcoholic father and their inability to be in a relationship where a person loves you without abuse. Yeah. So in order for that person to come into awareness of that which is preventing them from living a healthy life and having healthy relationships, it's important to show them the association between what they experienced as a child what mechanism they developed to cope with that, what their construction of reality is in consequence of those experiences in their childhood, and how that's affecting them in the present moment. Right. I have a construction of reality question for you based exactly on what you just said. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot about stories 
about narratives and about how powerful narratives are, particularly the narratives that we weave for ourselves. We get to tell our own stories. We get to tell our own stories to ourselves and to other people. And these stories are so powerful. And it seems to me from experience that part of your work is to kind of walk with people as they tell their story, but then in a way to kind of like interrupt the way they oppress themselves by virtue of how they look at that story. Absolutely. How they weave that narrative, right? Can you talk about how you do that in your work? Yeah, I mean, stories, that, that's, that's like 80% of the work, right? Because we live off of stories. We create a story about ourselves. And based on that story, there's a narrative about who we are. And then we live life based on that narrative. So the work they do with me is, okay, let's review that story. What story are you telling yourself about yourself and acting from? So we review the story and then we interrupt the story and check in to what part of that story is actually true. What they made themselves believe from that story and inquire about it and how it's affecting the present moment. And what normally happens is you review the story. It's not true. But the thing is, the last time they reviewed that story, they were seven years old. Yeah. So that story was probably true through the eyes and heart of a seven-year-old kid. But now that you're 40 and you're reviewing that story, you're like, oh, wait, hold on a second. Actually, that's not what was happening. That's what I understood from my level of interpretation as a seven-year-old. But now that I'm 40, I see much more. And to give you an example, it can be, it can be a 40-year-old man who has a deeply troubled relationship with his mom because he feels that his mom was never there for her. And when you review the story and what they went through, you know, the mom was never home. He was always at friend's house and didn't receive the love and nurture that he wanted. And therefore he developed a lot of resentment and anger towards her. And the story is that his mom doesn't love him. And you review what happened and actually it's true. His mom wasn't there, but his mom wasn't there because she was working four jobs as a single mom trying to pay for his excellent education and for him to have healthy food at home and to pay the rent for him to have a house. And suddenly he's 40 years old and he realizes that the absence of his mother didn't mean that she was rejecting him. It meant that she loved him so much, she was sacrificing her entire life for him to have a decent one. Yeah, flip the script. And so the script changes, the narrative changes, everything changes. Everything that he was made to believe suddenly breaks or transcends into a different kind of story. And therefore, his relationship with his mom has an opportunity to be healed. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so critically important in your work to help people to recast the narratives from which they so often suffer. I mean, we're all sort of living an illusion 
based on the narratives that we continue to tell ourselves. And, you know, what's great about what you do in my experience is that you have so much compassion and, and so much empathy, right? And so much like hope in people. I feel like you have a lot of hope in people. Is that true? Mm. Yes. Yes. You know, they, they ask me, oh, is, it must be hard being a therapist. You know, you're listening to people's problems all day and, and it must be difficult to, you know, to, to be exposed to that on a daily basis. But my answer is always no, because I know that with the right guidance, they can change their script. They can change their path. They can find the joy and the love for themselves and life. And I know because they're, they're here, they're showing up, they're in session. They want to change. There's something in them that tells them they can't live like this anymore. And therefore they're seeking guidance and I'm working with them. So in that sense, it gives me a lot of joy because although there's a lot of suffering, I know that that, that suffering is only for them to be living a better life. Yeah. And I do have hope. I believe that all humans can find that joy within themselves and, and, and undo those layers of conditioning to come home to themselves. Yeah, it's probably worth being a hope junkie, uh, <laughs> given what the opposite is, right? So I know you think really seriously about hope and, and healing. You also think and feel really seriously about the mind-body connection and the role of emotions in physical health. This is how you and I got connected. And so I was hoping I could get you to talk about these connections as well as maybe uh, you know, like how you help clients to make sense of the, the emotional, physical relationships. Yes, that is true. That's how we first started talking, actually. Yeah. It's um, the mind-body connection is super powerful. The, the body will teach you what you are not seeing within yourself. And I see the body as a messenger to help us examine parts of ourself that we were never educated to look into. And when you avoid exploring your negative emotions, they get stuck in your body and they start interfering with your day-to-day -day life. Because if you are unwilling to look at your emotions, your body will force you to do it because its only interest is you and your life. And there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful quote by A.H. Almas, which is an American spiritual teacher that also talks a lot about psychology. And he's originally from Kuwait and he was Gabor Mate's teacher. And I, I have it here for you because it's beautiful and it's really connected to what we're talking about. And it goes, your conflicts 
All the difficult things, the problematic situations in your life are not chance, they are actually yours. They are specifically yours, designed specifically for you, by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. The part of you that loves you more than anything else has created roadblocks to lead you to yourself. You are not going in the right direction unless there is something pricking you in the inside, telling you, look here, this way. That part of you loves you so much that it doesn't want you to lose the chance. It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It will make you suffer greatly if you don't listen. What else can it do? That is its purpose. Mm. Yeah. And this is how I feel about the body. The problems that arise in our body, chronic illnesses that, that we develop, they force us to look at our body and examine our life. What is it we're doing that has led me to this place? Are you working 16 hours a day? How much are you sleeping? How much time are you spending with your loved ones? Because there's something you're not doing that is damaging your body. And if you weren't doing those things and you were leading a peaceful, harmonious life with all of life, then you wouldn't have that physical issue, most probably. Not always, but oftentimes. Not always. Yeah. So, 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 so what happens is when a person has a physical condition, they go to the doctor, they get medicine and drugs to stop the physical pain. But that doesn't solve the problem and it will just either make it worse or lead them to a diff different physical illness. Now, if you come, you go to a therapist and you examine that physical illness from a therapeutic perspective, you can get to somewhere as to what the message is. For me, it's when I say it's a message. Treat it as a messenger. What is it trying to say to you? And often there's a message. And once the person receives the message, they can then change their life. And those conditions become less or they disappear. Because all it wants is for you to listen to the message. So you can change your life and live in more harmony. Yeah. But sometimes the price is too high and people aren't willing to do it. Because life is complicated, you know? If the message is you need to take some time out, relax, and give yourself more time because ever since you've given birth, you have two kids and you've never taken a day off and your body's taking a toll and asking you to take a break. It's like, okay, great, but I can't. I can't leave my job because if I leave my job, I can't pay the bills. If I can't pay the bills, maybe I have to take my kids out of the school and it's a good school for them to be in. So we have to sometimes be willing to pay the high price and sacrifice all those things we've been conditioned to think are necessary for us. Yeah, life is full of trade-offs and sacrifices, but as we say, the body keeps the score. And uh, yeah, it was really a pleasure to hear you 
talk me through it like that. I like the language that you bring to the problem. I have one big question, and then I want to play a game with you, if that's okay. Yes. So part of your work is wrapped up in bringing people sometimes in a creative way face to face with their emotions. And I want you to talk a bit about how in your practice you help people to develop relationships with their emotions. Yeah, it's about first connecting the person to their body. You say, right, what's what emotion is present? You say sadness, okay. Now, where's that sadness living? And more often than not, it's in the heart or in the stomach. And so you inquire further, deeper. What are the sensations that you're feeling in the body connected to that sadness? So you give the person the opportunity to first have some distance between who they are and what they're feeling for them to understand that they are not the feeling they are not the sadness sadness is what they are experiencing by giving them an opportunity to find where that sadness is in their body you're teaching them to notice when that sadness is present and are able to identify it and work with it and when you ask them about the sensations they feel in that area, it gives them the opportunity to be more of the observer and become aware of what the sensations are, what it is, and start having a relationship with sadness by getting to know it better. So the next time it comes, they know it's there and it's less scary because it's not so foreign. And once they've identified the sensations in that part of their body, they can spend some time sitting with it. So they learn to not distract away from the emotion, but actually spend time with it. Because the only way to develop a relationship further with anyone or anything is by spending time with it and getting to know it. Yeah. And coming to know what the needs of the sadness is. Like, what does that sadness need from you? There's always something. And so you ask, what, if it could speak, what would it say? And the answers are infinite, right? But maybe it's, I, I'd like... To, to feel more loved or it's feeling really lonely, it would like some company. And once you understand what the sadness needs, then we can work towards how to get there. And the important thing here is for the person to develop a relationship with their emotions so that when it's present, they learn to spend time with it as opposed to distracting away from it in order to quickly feel better. 
Because then it's never going to go away. Yeah. Man, I so frequently find myself getting profoundly emotional every time we talk. You are a bit much, Steffi. <laughs> uh, but that's what I got here for. Hey, listen, I really want to talk about the medicinal side of your work. Mm -hmm. But before we do, like I said, I want to encourage you to maybe play a little game with me. It's a word association game of sorts. Okay. Uh, how you feel about that? Yeah, your game? Let's do it. All right. So I'm going to state a word or a phrase that I jotted down while I was listening to you and then maybe ask you to explore how that word or that phrase relates to what you do for a living. Okay? Fun. Right? And in that spirit, the first word is playfulness. How does playfulness relate to what you do for a living? Oh, I, I'd like to think that my sessions are very playful in the sense that there's there's some laughing and there's some, um, <laughs> how would I, how would I say it? It's, you know, when a client realizes the ridiculous things he does or she does, then laughing about it, you know, because some things are worth laughing about. It's like the, the ridiculousness of a person's reaction. And then you laugh with them and, and it brings some lightness to the therapy session. So it's not so serious, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're good at that. And you have a great laugh, which helps. <laughs> um, you know, maybe this is a little bit oversharing, but it's my podcast, so I can, <laughs> you know, I think in our session, sometimes I sometimes fear that I'm being too playful. You called me out rather recently for, um, you know, making light, making jokes, you know, deploying what's left of my sense of humor to mm, create some levity, but also maybe to distract. And so I think it's really interesting how like you have your finger on the pulse of that, like you want to make things playful, but you're not suffering fools lightly. And like you have like, like certain limits uh, in a way. Uh, like, I think I, I get the sense, tell me if this sounds true, that you will allow your sessions to be playful to the extent to which it advances the patient's healing, but you're not reticent to shut down the playfulness if it's a means of distraction. Am I close? For sure. Yeah. Because making jokes is a very common distracting mechanism for people. It's the best one I have. They make themselves, <laughs> they make themselves be liked. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And we want to be liked. We want people to like us and we fit in and it decreases the chances of being rejected. So when that comes into play in the session, it's really important to point it out. Ugh, my oversharing just like blew up in my face. Like you just <laughs> totally nailed me on my own podcast. Wonderful. Let's change <laughs> the subject. Um, another phrase, number two. I think we have five of them. I love them. Thanks. So the second word, suffering. How do you help people to understand their suffering? It's really about first them feeling their suffering, creating a space where they can express and feel the suffering, as well as identifying where it's coming from. 
And that's where the understanding comes from. It's, this is what I'm suffering right now. But then you, through compassionate inquiry, actually, you figure out where that suffering originated from. I mean, it's a really long response, to be honest. Yeah, you, we could really go into this, yeah. Like, that's the whole compassionate inquiry methodology, or the inquiry itself. What you go into is helping people understand their suffering. And it, it boils down to, when's the first time you felt this pain? And normally it's in their childhood. And what you then make them understand that actually the pain they're suffering from has nothing to do with the present moment. And the pain that they're suffering originated a long time ago. But that wound is still open. So every time things happen in their day-to-day -day basis that trigger that wound, they will suffer. But instead of making it about the person today or the events of today, you take them back down to what originated. And you work on that wound to heal it. Perfect. You're doing very well at this game. <laughs> Round three. You ready for it? Mm -hmm. Taking responsibility. Oh, such an important one. Things have happened in our lives that we cannot control. But what we want to do in therapy is encourage the person to take responsibility for what they can change within themselves. So you bring the, the, the client's current issue back to themselves, showing them that it's not about someone else because that someone is just triggering that wound that was already there. And you encourage 100% responsibility, which includes action. You know, what you want to get to a place where what is an action that will help integrate what they have discovered during the session. Yes. And I want our listeners to be wicked clear on this point, because I feel like some people hear your response to suffering and its relationship to one's childhood or to previous traumas. And then there's this notion that like people go to therapy and they spend, you know, an hour a week thinking about when they were seven or 14 or whatever. And while that is part of a process. It's how that's married to taking responsibility that is like the power stroke to make the process work. Or? Yeah, that's exactly what it's about, right? Like, yes, yes, you had an alcoholic father that was verbally abusive and it was damaging to your spirit, to your being, to everything. But what are you going to do? You're going to, you can sit and sulk and blame him. But as long as you're blaming your parents, there's nothing you're doing to change. So it's important to understand the reality of what happened. It's important to find compassion and to feel the pain you experience. But from then on, you're an adult now and you have a responsibility to help yourself. Exactly. So what can you do to to give that child living inside you what their parents didn't give them. Because as a child, that parent wasn't there. But now you're older and you have the responsibility and the, the, the capability to help yourself. So incidentally, I think you just sort of walked through 
my fourth round. <laughs> so we're just going to go straight to round five, which is the new round four. Are you ready for the final round of word association game with Daniel Aaron Lazar? I am ready. I already feel I beat the game because I because I beat your fourth one. You did. Oh, yeah, you're winning. You have like 7.42 million points. <laughs> Letting go. Mm. So important. It's deeply tied to forgiveness. Forgiving. In order for you to let go of what doesn't serve you anymore. And having the maturity to understand that what you're holding on to, that you think it's anger for someone else, you're carrying yourself and you're only damaging yourself. So it's actually taking the person to a point where they can understand that what they're holding on to is only to their own detriment. Okay. Cue the Frozen theme song. You won the game. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> I do not miss the days when that was blaring in my house. Ooh, that song. <laughs> Love my daughter, but Zooey Mama, that one. We should have let that one go earlier. <laughs> so in the spirit of letting go, uh, I'm hoping we can explore the role that psychedelic medicines play in your practice. Now, prior to our recording this afternoon, I had asked you and you had told me that about 75% of your clients are what we're going to call non-medicinal clients in this regard. So you work with psychedelic medications with about 25% of your clients. And if it's cool with you, I'd like to dive into that side of your work. Yeah. For sure. But just to clarify, I don't work with psychedelic medication. I will work with them before a psychedelic experience or, and after a psychedelic experience. Cool. Thank you for your clarification. And tell me if we shouldn't talk about this. I trust you will. I assume that in order to help to prepare people for psychedelic experiences and to help to integrate them afterwards. You have had your own experiences, which have changed you profoundly. So how would you describe your relationship to psychedelic medicines? I will describe them as mm, a long-term relationship. <laughs> And every day we keep learning more and more about each other. I have a deep connection with ayahuasca, uh, an Amazonian brew that the indigenous people of in the Amazon jungle, in Peru, in Brazil, and in Colombia as well, have been working with for thousands and thousands of years. I'm more familiar with ayahuasca than any other psychedelic. I've also had experiences with magic mushrooms, with psilocybin, but I haven't connected with that medicine as much as I have with ayahuasca. And in fact, most of the clients that I'm working with, we are preparing them for their ayahuasca experiences and integrating their experience that they've had with the medicine. There's many psychedelics, ibogaina, MDMA, magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, yahe, 
I am. So I don't want people to think, oh, just psychedelics. I work really very specifically with ayahuasca. Okay. So maybe we should start here then. Um, how and when might you suggest medicine to a client? Is it even a suggestion? Talk to me about that. Mm -mm. I don't suggest the medicine to my clients unless they ask. I don't think it's my place because these are substances that are illegal in, in the UK where I'm based. So it would be out of practice for me to suggest to my clients. And it's really an, an, an inner exploration of themselves. And sometimes they come to me and they say, hey, I've heard about this. I know you work with this medicine. What do you think? And then I will offer my, my opinion, my professional opinion. But I do not suggest it to my clients. So when clients bring it up to you, you know, you have a long-standing relationship with them. You have a positive working relationship with them. You have a compassionate relationship with them. What factors tend to influence whether you would honor their request by suggesting that maybe this could be a prudent endeavor for them? Because if I if I know well, actually, it's it's important to say that most of the most of the people that I'm involved with ayahuasca with will be people that have already heard of the medicine, are are intrigued about it and want to take it, right? Right. People don't come to me asking me if they should or not, so they're already in a place where they're ready. Hold on, there. Let me pause you there. Yeah. They're in a place where they're desirous. Yes. I am not persuaded that they're always in a place where they're ready. Can you talk about that? Ah, okay. Well, the thing is, if they have curiosity to sit with the medicine, they've already had a calling for it. And therefore, that's their readiness. But another thing is them being prepared for the psychedelic experience, right? They're ready to have that experience, but sometimes they need preparation in order to have a more positive experience once they do sit with the medicine, right? So that comes down to practices that will facilitate their psychedelic experience. Can you talk about these practices that will help to prepare someone for a psychedelic experience? Yes. So one that's really important is understanding how much therapy they've had to know how comfortable they are with the shadow side of themselves, the negative experiences they've had in their life. Because if someone has never been able to experience negative things that have happened to them and then they suddenly drink the medicine and all these things that have happened to them, deep trauma come up, they won't be in a place where they can healthily cope with receiving specific truths, painful truths about their life. So it's important that a person is somewhat comfortable and ready to receive information about things that have happened in their past. Two, 
it's about teaching them how to work with their breath to bring themselves to a place of groundedness. Because when the medicine is quite heavy and quite strong and overwhelming, the one thing that will ground the person and aid in them feeling safe is focusing on their breath. The breath will always guide them. So part of the preparation is teaching them breath work. When the medicine is very strong, they can always fall back to that. You also teach them posture because having a straight back and a straight spine and sitting up is much more beneficial to them than lying down or being in a curved position. So these are tips that are really important to know before sitting with the medicine. Do you ever find yourself trying to encourage clients to work longer and perhaps more assiduously on those three essential components before they sign up for uh, an ayahuasca experience? Are you ever like, hey, I, I support you. I, I, you know, I'm in no position to say no, but I think maybe if we can work together for another three months, you will have a, a more meaningful, comfortable, safe experience. Absolutely. Okay. Like I have, there was a client that came and wanted to have an uh, ayahuasca experience. He was going to go to the jungle. And I said, look, let's do therapy. It was actually for three months. Okay. Let's do therapy for three months. Scratch a bit of the surface into what you are inquiring about, because there's always an inquiry, something specific people would like to work on. So let's inquire so you are more familiar with the pain so that when you go into the medicine, there's a clarity about this issue that allows you to actually go deeper with the medicine. Yes. And it dawns on me that a not insubstantial proportion of our listeners here might not know what ayahuasca is and what it does and how long it lasts. Can you give us the condensed version of that? Yeah. So ayahuasca is a tea that is made from a vine and the leaves of a tree. The vine is from the Nishipath, from the ayahuasca tree, mixed with the leaves of the Shakruna tea. And these two plants are brewed together and creating the ayahuasca drink. And you will drink like a 20, 30 or 40 milliliters of the tea and you will sit in ceremony led by a shaman and it takes you into a psychedelic journey where aspects of your subconscious are accessed and you learn about parts of yourself that would otherwise be blocked by your conscious mind. But because we're tapping into the subconscious, anything can come out and the person needs to be ready for, for that kind of information. What's the range of how long an ayahuasca experience lasts? I'd say between six and eight hours. Mm -hmm. And how common is it for people a week or two later 
to have what we used to call flashbacks? They don't have flashbacks. There's an array of things that can happen. I mean, some people can be in absolute joy two weeks after, or they can be in a really difficult place because they've experienced some hard truths about themselves and they don't know how to cope with it. They don't know what to do with with that information and they enter a deep depression. It's also possible. So unlike DMT, there's no sort of reliving the experience. You don't sort of slide back into the the euphoria and or pain. Ayahuasca is six to eight hours and then you sort of slide your way out of it. Because this experience can be, probably often is, profoundly intense because people participating in this ceremony have their unconscious mind sort of set before them and they're, you know, grappling with the shit. It does take help to kind of reintegrate them and to make sense of that experience, to contextualize that experience. Can you talk a little bit about how you help your clients to process an ayahuasca experience and then to integrate that experience into their lives? Absolutely. This is my favorite thing to do, right? Because you have a psychedelic experience and you receive all these messages and truths. Then you go back to your life and, and you don't know how to integrate the teachings of the medicine into your day to day. And if you don't, spend time integrating the teachings into your life, nothing will change. And in fact, you might be in a worse place because you've seen what you have to change and you're not doing it. And so working with a therapist, so, so what I do with a client that has had a psychedelic experience is go through the visions they've had and what experience they had and how they're feeling and break down what that experience means to them, what the meaning, what the meaning is behind what happened in the six to eight hours of ceremony and to retrieve the message. Because actually sometimes the message isn't so clear. Things happen and the person might not think those little things that happened are connected at all. But when we sit in session and talk about their experience, they start seeing how everything is connected and what the medicine was trying to tell them. So that's one thing. One part of what we do is breaking down the message that they receive from the medicine. Step two is now that they have received the message, spend some time seeing how they feel about it, what they think if it resonates with them, because it doesn't also have to be that because the medicine said so, it has to be that way. The the person still has responsibility. They can choose. And if they make a decision that the message from the medicine resonates with them and that's something they like to work towards, then we enter step three, which is looking at what actions the person can take to integrate those truths into their life. Yeah. So they can start making changes. Oh, it sounds so powerful, so meaningful, so valuable. It also sounds like really hard work. It is. Yeah. 
well, it is. Yeah, it is because it shows us aspects of ourselves that that are what is blocking us from being in harmony in life. The 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 negative patterns that we get into, and it shows us how we are interfering with our own happiness. Actually, yeah. That's true. I actually had meant that it sounds like it's hard work for you, but how much oh. is it like, you're right? How stuffy is it to be like, yeah, it's hard work for them. You're always thinking about them. That's, <laughs> that's, that's why you're the best. And I imagine it to be hard work for both you, but, but powerful and life-changing work. And I'm just so grateful that you do it. I'm such a beneficiary of the, the wisdom and the compassion that you've developed through uh, these difficult and challenging experiences. And that should be enough. But Steffi, you know me, I, I'm a sucker for a story. And I was hoping that we could begin to drive this train into the station by having you tell two stories. Uh, first, the story of a professional failure, and then to kind of hedge on that, the story of a professional triumph. Hmm. It's interesting, the one of the failure, because failure as a therapist, it's a difficult one to see because someone maybe drops out of session. They stop contacting me for a session. And I'm left wondering if it's because I'm a terrible therapist or maybe they ran out of money and they can't have sessions anymore, but they're too ashamed to tell me. Or maybe they, and it's, it's actually, this one has happened. They fall in love and suddenly they just don't want to do therapy anymore because they're in that bubble. Yeah. And it's difficult for me to know when a client stops coming to session if it's because I failed as a therapist. Now, what I do know is sometimes I'll leave a session and I'll know that I didn't ask the right questions. Whereas I'll ask a question and it takes a client somewhere else and, and I know it wasn't the right question. And I feel what, what distinguishes a great therapist from an average therapist is the ability to ask the right questions. Yeah. And, and sometimes I'll leave a session and be like, mm -mm. <laughs> no, that's, that was not the way. And I wonder what like my 60 year old self would do or what a great therapist would do better than what I did. Is it hard to be graceful with yourself when you know that could have been the moment, right? Like if you would have asked the right question, this could have put this person on the path. It could have catapulted them to healing. Can you, can you, you know, contextualize that and put it in a box and be like, ah, you know, I did my best, you know, I'm learning, always learning. Are you, are you good with yourself like that? I am. I am good because I, I know that I can only offer what I can offer. I can only ask the questions that in that moment come up for me. Yeah. And if anything, I just, I, I feel bad because I feel like, ah, oh, if I was a better therapist, like I, I could have led the client to that place sooner. Yeah, yeah. Like saving them time and money. So that's where I feel like, you know, as a service provider, I could have offered a better service. <laughs> yeah, 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 I feel you. But I am graceful because I can only do what I can do. And it's and it's good because it also forces me 
to put myself in a position of learning. I mean, I'm always learning. I don't think I'll ever not be in that position. But those are moments of like, okay, okay, what, what, what's the next thing you're going to read up about? Or like find a therapist you like and, and you know, watch videos on, on how they deal with clients or something like this. So it keeps the flame of learning alive. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And that very attitude is why you've had a great many professional successes. I'll listen to one. <laughs> you know, the professional successes are in the small stuff. Like when I'm in session with a, with a client and they say, I was having a conversation with my wife and I chose not to walk away. It's like every inch of my body was telling me to walk out, to react, to shout, and to take the dog for a walk. But I chose to stay, to listen, and to be calm. And as a result of that, we didn't have a loud, unhealthy fight. And it left us both in an adult place, and I didn't trigger her inner child. That, for me, is success. Yes. Because what I like, I like to see myself as a teacher. So teaching people when they're triggered to manage their response and not react. And he was able to catch himself and choose a different response. And another success is when I'll have, there's another client when, and she'll say, you know, I could, I was feeling really, really sad. And instead of distracting myself from the pain of sadness, I actually just sat in my room, put a candle on and allowed myself to feel. Yeah. And for me, that's a success. Yeah. You are a great teacher. You're a great model. Oh, thank you. I dig you. I like you, Steffi. <laughs> um, so much so that before you go, I'm hoping you might recommend to our listeners something, anything that you'd like to endorse that illustrates or somehow influences what you do for a living? Spending time in nature, spending time with the wildflowers, looking at the perfection of the leaves and the flowers, specifically sunflowers. They bring so much joy. And in a world full of activity and chaos and demands and materialism, the forest saves us and brings us back to balance. So I'd like to invite everybody to spend some time with the wildflowers in nature to find that peace within themselves. All right. Well, you, my friend, are a wildflower in your own way. Stefania Arzamendia, Steffi, thank you so much for being on For a Living. It has been a wonderful learning experience and a real joy to be in conversation with you. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here and to have this conversation with you. So, Steffi, I don't know if you know this, but like before today, only my wife and my dearest childhood friend knew this. Um, but like I totally told you on the podcast, 
you're the last guest on this podcast. I mean, at least for a while. And it kind of hurts to say it, you know, after 10 seasons, this podcast is taking an indefinite hiatus. It's not a divorce. And if it is, it's probably an amicable one. I feel like it's amicable. It's more like I'm, I'm looking for a, a trial separation, you know, and, <laughs> and it's not because I don't love it. This project has been a labor of love for three years. Um, but as is my way, I've been obsessing over it for three years. And I just need to create some bandwidth and, and some space for other things. I mean, not necessarily more important things, just other things. And, and I should tell you that I'm like really, really anxious about this separation. I, I, I've come to identify so strongly with this project and I'm proud of it, you know, and I'm grateful to have these conversations, you know, like the conversation we just had makes me a better person. And so like, I've been preparing for this moment and like, it's here, you know, and it's over at least for a while and I'm going to miss it. And it, it, it hurts like hell. Mm. So I don't know what to do. Why don't we have a little ceremony honoring everything this podcast has brought to your life? Like now? Yes. I'm going to ask you, what do you, you feel you've learned from having this podcast in your life? What do you take with you? I mean, so much. I have become a better listener. My empathy levels are as high as they've ever been. Like I'm so grateful that I've been able to create a space for people to talk about what they do in light of the fact that, you know, the entire workplace is changing so rapidly and people in so many ways, they feel like they're out of control and people, you know, people are really unhappy and they're so frustrated, but like I was able to sit down with people for, you know, an hour and a half or so and really just listen to them and, and ask the best questions I could muster up. And I just feel like they were really grateful. Like I've had so many people who have been on the podcast speak fondly about the experience and and express their gratitude and like i want to do it forever like i want to offer this forum until the day i die but like i just can't it's so labor intensive and so i've learned so much and i've felt so grateful and connected to people like the level of connection like the whole thing is like yeah we're talking about work but like we're not that's sort of the con the conceit of the whole thing is we're talking about work, but we're talking about, you know, how people feel and what they're passionate about and what they care about and what they're afraid of. And like in a very focused and concentrated way, and it wasn't having discussions with, you know, celebrities and politicians and people with microphones. It was like having conversations with just good, hardworking people. And they got to like talk about what, what they do and how they feel about it. So yeah, so I've learned a lot and I and I've and I'm just so proud of it. And it's hard to it's just hard. These things that you've learned from the podcast, improving your listening skills, learning how to offer a space 
for people to share their feelings and emotions with you? Are these things you can include in your day-to-day life? I mean, look, I still have my classroom and everything I just said about the podcast, you know, absent the discussions about work is like what I try to do in the classroom. So I'm like not a person without a space to be empathic and ask questions. It's just that this was like a way to connect with people who, you know, they're they're adults and maybe that's what it was. I haven't really thought about it that way, but like so many of my intense conversations with stakes have to do with like teenagers. Um, Just notice that the greatest part of what having this incredible podcast offers you. So what this podcast represents to you, that's not dying. And it's always going to live with you because its teachings are staying with you from here onwards. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. You have no idea how many people I'm going to like back up to the bar and be like, how do you describe what you do? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just going to have like AirSats podcast conversations at the playground and the bar. Um, And I think you're right. It's really kind of you and wise of you. There's a lot that I can take with me and I will. It's just like a little separation anxiety and, and like in a way maybe feeling like there could have been like a bigger success or like, you know, you know, millions of people could have listened instead of like thousands or, you know what I mean? And so there's that sort of like unfinished business thing that I'm kind of... What have you achieved? 10 seasons, almost 100 episodes of really empathic engagement with, you know, people who have taught me a whole lot. It's been amazing. Can, can you feel, can you feel proud of yourself for that? Yeah, it's been amazing. Yeah. What have you got to say to yourself? I mean, it's bittersweet. Look, I am proud of myself. I'm proud of the people who have joined me in conversation. I honestly feel like every season got better. I just, uh, I have a hard time letting go. (laughs) There's that word again. Yeah. Also, what I would like to say is letting go takes time. Allow yourself to grieve the loss of the podcast in your life, it's important to go through this process and to go through the sadness of not having it in your life anymore and what that means to you. But always as well, remembering to honor yourself for what you have created and for the lives that you have touched. Yeah, thanks for saying that, it means a lot. All right. I will uh, talk to you tomorrow. Yes. Unrecorded this time. Yes.